kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Clear as mud, right? You follow Jesus around to these four biographical accounts of his life found in our four gospels at the beginning of our New Testament. And you find that Jesus is talking in these strange illustrative stories all over the place. Uh, Some scholars say that 30% of every word that we have recorded from Jesus was found inside of one of these parables, these stories. There's a best guess is that there's probably like 39 to 40 different parables throughout these four gospel accounts. Jesus told these weird, confusing, and completely fictitious stories all the time. I think it's fun to stop and think that like Jesus made up stories. He was a master storyteller. We also say that he was like this incredible teacher. Like we often, and I believe Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. But you ask yourself today in 2024, how do we grade good teaching? How do we uh, consider what's really great teaching, whether it be like a sermon or a workshop or on a TED talk? Like how do we like grade really good teaching in our modern Western context? We think about clarity, don't we? We think about accurate information, thorough research, straightforward, practical actionable steps that we can take from a teaching. That's how we think great teaching is formed today, but it seems like Jesus doesn't care anything about that. (laughs) It's almost as if like Jesus, by our modern Western standards, and hear me, grace umbrella, as I say this, but by our modern Western standards, Jesus was a terrible teacher because it's confusing. What do we do with that? Mustard and leaven and like uttering things at the creation of the world? Like, what are we talking about, Right? But according to Jesus, and I find this like, I'm like a bug to a light to this idea, but according to Jesus, there is a type of wisdom that is not just information transfer into our brains. There's a, there's a type of wisdom, a quality of wisdom that's not like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix getting it downloaded, I know Kung Fu. Like there's a type of wisdom that's deeper than that. It's a type of wisdom that has to be lived in to be experienced. It's a type of wisdom that's best carried through story. It's better than straightforward information. So Jesus made up stories. And stories are powerful, right? I I think back to your youth or those coming of age stories or book series that like shaped you. Stories are powerful. I think back on my life and I've always been drawn to big, epic, beautiful stories. Like I remember like I was of the age when the Star Wars prequel series that everybody hated came out when I could actually go to the movies. So I love the prequels. Like a millennial, that's what we have going for us, right? But then I went back and I watched all of the old movies like the Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader stuff. And I 
became so immersed in Star Wars. I am still a Star Wars nerd, but back then I was like, I was like, had the AT-AT Walker toys. I had the trading cards. I had like play lightsabers all the time. I love that stuff so much. And then I had kids and it was pretty early on that uh, we realized our son, Jack, who just turned five last week, loves Star Wars too. So how did I spend my Saturday? Building Star Wars Legos with my little man. And we were hanging out and having lightsaber duels. He has like the dual, uh, the double lightsaber Darth Maul style. And I've got like a blue baseball bat. That's how we're rolling in our house right now. And we're playing all the time. And like Jack loves Star Wars so much. It's all Star Wars all the time. So much so that sometimes when he goes down for a nap or bed, he looks like this. I'm like, buddy, don't want to ruin your Darth Vader mask. You got to take that off to sleep, buddy. Like he's going to really have the CPAP machine down someday, probably, because <laughs> he's got that going on. But I just like, I love these stories and they're so powerful to us. I think back to when, uh, the very first PG-13 rated movie that I was allowed to see, which is a, a really coming of age story uh, for many of us. But it was the 1996 classic film starring Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, Twister. Yes, and I hear they're making a sequel, and I'm like so nervous that it's going to ruin the cinematic genius of the first one. But this movie shaped me so much. It like made me think about weather differently. It made me more afraid of tornadoes. And I keep, every time I see cows in a field, I'm thinking about cows. We've got cows flying through the tornado, right? I think about that often because it shaped how I still, when I see a tornado watch, and when I see a warning, what I think about is from Twister, right? And for me, in middle school, in school, one of the books that just, man, transform me. This story uh, that just transformed me was the classic from Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. We to, there we go. To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I mean, this movie just like moved me, or this show, I mean, book that was a movie and a show, it like moved me in so many ways, like Scout, and I just wanted to be Atticus Finch. Like, I still want to be Atticus Finch when I grow up, right? Like this person who had justice on his mind, but also dignity for all kinds of people, the way he loved and cared for his kids in this rough environment where there was racism and injustice, so powerful, these movies, these stories, these books, they shape us because they're so powerful. I'll go as far to say this, that I believe that stories have the capacity to transform us more than facts do. I mean, let me say that again. Stories have the capacity to transform you more than just receiving information and facts do. Because we live in these stories, we imagine ourselves in these stories, we see ourselves in the world, and oftentimes God differently through these stories. But beyond all the theology and Bible stuff, do you know that like neuroscience is showing us the power of story and storytelling? I learned last week about something that we're on the front ends of discovering called neural coupling. And some of you guys are like, I did not expect to learn about neural coupling at church this morning. Buckle in here. This is pretty cool stuff. And we realize that when somebody is just giving information to another person, distributing information to another person, that does one thing in our brain, but telling a story to another person, it does something bigger, something more beautiful that actually connects the two together. For example, here's an illustration of what happens when the speaker is just giving information to the listener. And I see this all the time, like, because uh, when I start like, going through a bunch of information, I watch you guys start to nod off in this moment, right? But this is what we see is that there's a part of your brain as the speaker that is going, and then there's a different part of our brain that makes us much sleepier going in the back of our brain. But when we shift the method of information distribution from just telling information to storytelling. Whenever I say, when I was 11, or my son Thomas did this thing this week, you guys have a different thing go on. We all do. Here's storytelling. Actually, the same part of the brain lights up from the speaker, the storyteller, 
to the person receiving the story as if they're participating in the story, in the creation of the narrative right there with you. Storytelling is a masterful tool to get a message across. It ties the listener in with the storyteller. They have the capacity, these stories, to change us more than just information distribution does. And it's an amazing thing about these parables, these fictitious stories that Jesus told, is because they have this beautiful capacity to confront us in a way that we actually receive it. You know, it's one thing just to be like, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're gross, you're a sinner, and just like wag your finger at somebody. But it's another thing to have them enter into a story to where they're confronted, their reality and how they view themselves, how they view others and how they view God is confronted, but it's in a way that actually compels us. It actually gets us to lean in instead of just get defensive and walk away. There's one parable that Jesus told, we don't have time in the series to bust into because we spent a whole month on it last March, but it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant, the unmerciful servant. And in this parable, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples comes up to him and goes, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who sinned against me? And I think he was talking about his brother, Andrew. I think it was very personal. That's just my, my take on that. Oh, he's driving me nuts. My little brother, Andrew, is driving me nuts. How long do I have to forgive him when he sins against me? Jesus could say, stop being a pompous, self-righteous jerk, Peter. Stop it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't wag his finger at him. He doesn't hit him over the head. He tells him a story of a servant who owed an insurmountable debt, but the master forgave, but then this same servant went and would not forgive his fellow servant for a small debt. And he has him enter into the story to where Peter can be changed and how we can be changed from hearing that story. Parables have the capacity to compel us, to invite us instead of just condemn us. I love what author Madeline Lingle said about this uh, reality. She's the author who wrote Wrinkle in Time, another great book if you're looking for a great read. But she says this, she's a Christ follower. And she said this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, not by owning them on social media, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I love that image. We do this by showing them a counter story, show them a light that's so lovely that they lean in instead of run away or turn our backs. This is what the parables of Jesus do. I'm telling you, they will confront us. We get into these stories and they will challenge us in the ways that we've been discipled and formed by our culture instead of the ways of Jesus. And they'll make us feel uncomfortable, but only in a way to bring us to the life that is truly life and to be brought into the light that is so lovely that we can't turn away. So with all that set up in mind, let's go back to that parable, the weird thing with the mustard and the yeast, and let's see it from the eyes and the ears of the people that would have heard it first, the audience around Jesus as he told the story, and then see what bridges we can build to our lives for Sunday afternoon and Monday morning so that we can partner with this God. Because here's the reality of what parables actually are. Uh, I love this uh, definition. I learned this from Tim Mackey in the Bible Project. He said this, that parables are short, fictitious stories Jesus told as a way to explain how he was bringing the kingdom of God. 
There's these short stories, these made-up stories that illustrate, that show us how he is bringing the kingdom of God, the surprising nature of the kingdom of God, the uh, upside-down value system of the kingdom of God, how we can act with a kingdom ethic in light of our life's crises and circumstances. This is what these stories do. And the goal of us understanding him bringing the kingdom of God is not for us to be like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But he is inviting every one of us to partner with him, to link arms with him, to not just staring at what Jesus did, but participation in what he's doing as he brings his kingdom to bear on earth in Kokomo as it is in heaven. So let's dive into these words again to understand it for all that it's worth and be challenged through it. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. He begins here, and we can't go too far even to finish that sentence because we've got to spend some time on the reason why he's sharing this parable. Over 50 times in the gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus is talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to explain and illustrate what this kingdom thing was. And in our modern American Western evangelical context, if, at least if you were like me, um, whenever I heard the phrase kingdom of heaven, I thought about the place that I go the good place that I get to go when I die because I trust Jesus. Like that's what I always pictured, but nothing could be farther from the truth because Jesus is king. He's not that interested in being your secretary of afterlife affairs. He wants to actually be king of right here and right now that will go on forever, not just watching and holding the gate for where you spend your eternity, right? So Jesus would explain this kingdom of heaven. And we need to change in our minds whenever we see kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, just thinking about our like castle on the golden streets and think more about the rule and reign of God here and now. I love what scholar and author Brad Gray, how he uh, defines the kingdom of heaven. I think this is helpful. I want to come back to this over and over again. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God advancing on earth, bringing healing and wholeness by chasing out the chaos. The kingdom of heaven is not some place that we go, but it's the order of heaven that's crashing into earth. This is what we talk about all the time at our church, that we want to be a part of partnering with God as he brings the up there down here, because we think that Jesus is bringing this. Jesus is up to this. And it's the rule and reign, the order of heaven, advancing not somewhere else, but on earth through Jesus, bringing healing and wholeness by chasing out the chaos the things that are disordered, the things that dehumanize, the things that bring brokenness, sin, whatever you want to call it, we chase out those things by bringing healing and wholeness. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a bunch of kids screaming across the hallway, <laughs> having lots of fun in church when it's known that you're not supposed to have too much fun in church, right? That's the kingdom of heaven, right? Oh man, I couldn't have planned that better. That's good. <laughs> I love it. Focus squirrel, right? This is where I'm at. Brad Gray says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is. And it's really important for us to understand this because over 50 times, Jesus is talking about it, ex exemplifying it, and he's giving us illustrations through parables about the kingdom of heaven. But his original audience, let's think about them for a second. They think of a different kingdom when they think about kingdom. They think about the kingdom of the Roman Empire, their boot on their neck. Now they're back in their homeland, but they can't worship the way they're called to worship and live the way that they're called to live and be free. And so when they hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, they're like, oh, it, what's it like, Jesus? Because we're living under the boot of the Roman Empire and they're taking everything from us. They crucified my neighbor last week because of all these different things. He didn't follow the Roman law. Like it, there's this oppression 
And when they think about the Roman Empire, the way they would describe it is violent. It would be defined by being big and bad and expansive and being conquest uh, driven in this moment. And Jesus is talking about a different kingdom. I'm sure he got lots of questions like, what is it actually like? When's it going to come? When's the war, the revolution going to begin, Jesus? And then Jesus tells a story. He gives a couple of illustrations to explain the nature and the values and the scope of his kingdom. So back to the parable. He says this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed to which his crowd around him said, What? Really? Like, you, we've got to pick up, like, the comedy in this, the absurdity of Jesus' teaching. They're expecting there to be, like, war, and they're expecting there to be battle, and this is when we're going to take down Caesar, and this is when we're taking back Jerusalem. And Jesus, the first thing he says, it's, it's like a mustard seed. And I don't have Shaquille O'Neal-sized hands, but if I had my palm of my hand out, I could probably hold 200 to 300 mustard seeds in the palm of my hand. Jesus says, what I'm doing, what I'm up to, what I'm inviting followers of me into is tiny. It's minuscule. It's slight. It's unimpressive on the surface. My kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, my rule and reign crashing into earth, chase out the chaos is like a mustard seed. And then the comedy gets deeper and thicker and funnier because he says this next, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. I mean, his audience would be like, what are you talking about? Like they would like stop and do a double take. This is so counterintuitive. This is so weird. This is so upside down because farmers in the first century would never plant a mustard seed in their field. They spent all the time making sure that there wasn't one small mustard seed that actually gets into their field because once a mustard seed gets into a field, it takes over. It's a toxic weed. It's something that you could like try to burn your yard or dig up your yard, but you can't quite get a mustard seed out of your field. So it makes no sense that someone would plant it in their field. I think of it in like Midwest terms. A mustard seed's like crabgrass. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like that flat grass that like shows up next to my sidewalk and I'll mow right over and it doesn't do anything. It just goes flatter. Then I'll come back out and I'll rip it out of my yard to where there's all these gaping holes in my yard. And I just kind of want to burn my whole yard down just to get rid of a little crabgrass. Is it just me? Sorry, this is like therapy for me. I know it's just coming up in the next couple weeks as we begin to mow too is what I'm thinking about. But it's something that you would never plant in your yard. You never plant it in your field. It's upside down. It's backward. And the other reality with mustard is that it's so toxic and it spreads so quickly and the root system of a mustard seed would go so deep and be intertwined with other things under the ground. It would be unstoppable. It was something that once it got into the ground, nothing could choke it out. Nothing could stop it from spreading. And this is what's interesting to me. Is that Jesus, from the very first couple words of this parable, he says, you want to know what I'm up to in the world? You want to know my mission? It's tiny. It's minuscule. It's unimpressive. It's counterintuitive. It's upside down. You would like put, do a double take on that. You're going to plant it in your field? But he also said that my kingdom, my rule and reign, the way of heaven, it's unstoppable. Like you can't change course. Like this thing is going to rule and reign. And there will be a day that in Kokomo, it's like it is in heaven, because that's where this whole thing is going, where I'll wipe every tear from every eye. I will end all pain and injustice and brokenness and sin, and things will be the way that it is. It's unstoppable. You can count on it from these couple words. This is what he's teaching us about what he's up to in the world and what he wants to invite us into. 
But then he continues on and he says this next. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, a mustard seed, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So from here, like we can probably deduce like, okay, so it looks like this thing, even though it's smart, starts really small, it grows to this massive thing and it actually like is a blessing to the birds where they can come and like perch on the branches. I guess that's cool. But there's also some weirdness in this too. If we consider um, just the, the understanding of agriculture in the first century Palestine, in, in Israel, whatever we want to call it. And what we see here is the idea that... Um, you see, there's one kind of mustard seed that grows into a bush, a small bush that goes wide. And there's another mustard seed indigenous to this land that would grow into a tree about six foot tall. But the bush kind of mustard seed never grows into the tree kind of mustard seed. And so you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What mustard? This is like heaven's mustard. Like what kind of mustard are we talking about here? It would be a little bit confusing. And it's in this moment in, in, in rabbi's teaching and rabbinical teaching where something is weird or doesn't quite make sense that the original audience, they would know because they knew their Bible so well. They'd be like, oh, he's hinting at something else. He's wanting us to like look back in the story of the scriptures that we have, the Hebrew scriptures, to understand it. Jesus is employing uh, this rabbinical tool called a remez or a hint. So using, saying something and hinting back to another passage, it's like a hyperlink. It would be in blue and he says something, you click on it and it goes all the way back to the original story. It's a remez, it's a hint. On the count of three, you guys, can you say remez with me? Remez, one, two, three, remez. And so the audience would think like, okay, what's this thing with birds? And they would, they'd go through their mind and be like, oh yeah, birds and branches. Ah, Ezekiel. That's exactly what they do. And I know we all spent time this morning in Ezekiel in our memorization of scripture, and we know the book by heart. But what they, in their mind, they would think like, okay, there's something about animals, birds, and like trees and stuff in the book of Ezekiel. And I think Jesus is calling us back to give color to what he's saying, to give more understanding to what he's saying, because he's quoting and referencing the major prophet of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was written to God's people, the Israelites, when they were in exile. They weren't even home in Israel, and it looked like things were dark, but Ezekiel, this passage in chapter 17, is encouraging them that you're going to live out your purpose. God is going to restore. You're going to be okay, even though you have the boot of the oppressor on your neck. Does that sound like a familiar context? Yeah. He's calling us back to Ezekiel 17. Let's check out this passage and what's said here. Ezekiel 17, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shades of its branches. All the lights on your dashboard should be going off, right? All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree or bush grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Jesus is calling back to Ezekiel in this passage talking about how there's going to be this tree, this bush that grows into a tree, and it's going to actually be a shelter for these birds. And it's also interesting inside of Ezekiel is he always, he ties certain nations to different kinds of animals like lions and other beasts. He calls the people of God a strong cedar tree. 
wink, wink, wink. And he also says that the Gentiles, the others, the nations, the people that don't follow the ways of God, the outsiders, they were considered birds in Ezekiel's teaching. With all that in mind, Jesus is saying this. You're going to live out. My kingdom takes root when you live out your original purpose to be a blessing to all nations, to all people, to include the outsider, the people that are on the cultural outs, the ones that they feel like they're, they don't belong in the fold in the family of God. When you welcome them in and you're a blessing to them and you serve them, that's when my kingdom takes root and birds will come and find their shelter in your branches. That's what we're called to be. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is small, tiny. It's counterintuitive. It'll make you break your neck. It's unstoppable. And my kingdom takes root. When you live out your purpose to welcome and include and embrace the outsider, the other, the Gentile, the sinner, whatever it might look like. That's what he's teaching us in this. And Jesus goes into what I believe to be a parallel parable. Parallel parable. I've been practicing that all week. Parallel parable. Very next verse, one verse, but it's another power pack teaching and illustration and story. He says this, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And I think this is a parallel teaching where Jesus is like, oh, maybe some of you guys didn't pick up the mustard seed thing, so I'm going to try this one out. Like, it's like this, right? And he's teaching the same thing just with a different angle. And teachers and preachers do this all the time. That's why I talk about the pacers next to rock concerts all the time, just trying to get to different people. This is what Jesus is doing. The kingdom of heaven, my rule and reign that's coming to earth to chase out chaos with hope and healing. It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. Now, it's like yeast. Now, any of you guys remember in your quarantine days, early pandemic, when you all started to make sourdough bread, right? It just took a little bit of yeast, right? A little bit of sourdough yeast to bake the bread. You don't like pour it in like ketchup in the KitchenAid, right? You don't really do that. Just a little bit of yeast. It's tiny, but it's also unstoppable. Once you pour yeast in, you drop your yeast in. Once it's there, you can't get yeast out of any of the dough, right? It has infiltrated everything. It's infected everything, right? But it's also counterintuitive. The original Jewish audience would have been like, what are you talking about? Because yeast was considered oftentimes a bad thing. In Leviticus 10, they weren't supposed to offer any sacrifices if there was yeast in it. And on certain holy days, they had unleavened bread to keep yeast out of it because it was a more holy thing. So they'd be like, what? It's God's using yeast for his kingdom? Like it would have been small, counterintuitive, unstoppable. But what about the like welcoming the outsider, including the others with small acts of hospitality? I think there's another remez in this teaching. There's only one place in the Bible, you guys, only one other place in the Bible where there's a woman who's baking, uh, baking bread and there's like a carb load party where it's like 60 pounds of flour. You guys know that's going to make a lot of carbs and someone's stomach's going to hurt. Somebody's going to go to bed sleep, uh, really happy too, right? There's only one other place in the whole Bible where this happens. It's in Genesis chapter 18. It's a story of Abraham and Sarah. And it's amazing. The only other place where they talk about baking bread and there's a lot of it. It's a story of radical hospitality and service to a stranger, the outsider, the other. Let's look at this together. Genesis 18. I can't make this stuff up. Jesus is so stinking epic. Here we go. Abraham, 
looked up and saw three men standing nearby. These are like strangers, shadowy figures, if you will. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He honored them and blessed them by bowing to these strangers. And think this was a time where strangers were considered danger, stranger danger, real thing in the Old Testament, right? But he bowed down to meet them. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, he honors them even with his words, do not pass your servant by. He says, I'm your servant. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. See the hospitality, the service done to these strange men from a different nation, worshiping a different God or the shadowy figure, they don't understand who it is. They still serve them. Very well, they answered, do as you say. He continues on. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah because he knew his wife was going to do most of the work anyway. He's just the spokesperson, right? That's how that works sometimes. He says, quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Three sayas, some scholars say is 50 to 60 pounds of flour. Right? This is what Jesus is referencing. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf. Uh, this was like a filet mignon. And gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds, cheese curds, probably from Culver's, and milk. And the calf had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree for shade under the bright, hot desert sun. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a woman just takes a little bit of yeast, but serves up this epic party for the stranger, for the outsider, through a simple yet radical act of service and hospitality. The kingdom of God is tiny. The kingdom of God is counterintuitive. It'll make you go, what in the world? But it's irresistible to watch. The kingdom of God is unstoppable, and the kingdom of God takes root. When we welcome, we include, we serve, we invite the stranger, the outsider into the fold of the family. This is what Jesus is teaching us through three short verses in these strange, small, weird, made up stories in a way that I don't think he could get across in a different reality. A couple things I want to leave us with. A couple things I want to challenge us with. Some, some practical challenges for us to learn from this. Some principles for us to actually be provoked by. I, I mean this in love. I want these principles to provoke us, to challenge us. Because oftentimes uh, the message of Jesus will uh, comfort the afflicted and it will afflict the comforted. So we need to like be shaken out of our uh, just being complacency. But this is what I want to challenge us with. And I'm in this too. But I want to challenge you to adopt a mustard seed mentality with your life. Join the mustard seed revolution, if you will, that Jesus kicks off. And I mean it this way. Just because something is small, don't give up. Don't stop. Keep going. The small mustard seed steps that you are called and invited to take, they grow into something explosive on God's timing. So sometimes even if you can't see results of what you're putting into your life, your spiritual journey, keep going anyway. I heard the story of Ludwig von Beethoven, Beethoven, this famous conductor and composer. And I didn't realize this, but he didn't become deaf until he was in his mid-40s. He was world famous when he became deaf. But he kept, in his privacy, he kept composing new music 
even though he couldn't hear anything. He trusted the theory that he knew. He trusted the distance between notes and the rhythm. And he kept composing even though he was deaf. He didn't just keep composing. He kept conducting even though he was deaf. And he would stand in front of theaters with thousands of admirers and fans. And he would conduct a symphony in silence and never hear one sound of thunderous applause at the end of it. But he kept composing. He kept conducting in the silence. My friends... I want to encourage you to adopt a mustard seed mentality and just keep doing the small things, even if it feels like you're in the silence. Do the next right thing as Frozen 2 taught us. (laughs) Do the next right thing. Maybe you've been following Jesus. You've been coming to church for a couple months, a year, or years now, and you just feel like you haven't seen that breakthrough that you wanted. Like You still like look in the mirror and you feel like most days you're the same and you're not changed into who you want to be but keep conducting, keep composing in the silence. Be faithful in the little things every day. Keep doing those small things because the small decisions that you make to follow Jesus, they are creating the foundation in which your character can withstand what God has for you in the future. So keep composing, keep conducting in the silence, keep moving forward in the small mustard seed steps, study the scriptures, soak in these stories, pray, continue to just be real and talk to God, give generously in the way that God's called us to serve other people, include the outsider, befriend the other, whatever it takes, do the right things, do that mustard seed mentality that I might not see the results right now, but God is doing something underneath the surface that's explosive and unstoppable. And the last challenge I want to give us is beyond just uh, being the type of Christian that I believe the right things. I've got the right theology. I know the stuff. I've got the answers to the exam. I want to encourage you and invite you into a lifestyle of following Jesus that's committed to a lifestyle of radical, intentional, modest, acts of love. This is what God's kingdom looks like. And I want to invite you to live in a way of these radically intentional and modest acts of love. I love uh, author Shane Claiborne says this, that God's kingdom grows smaller and smaller until it takes over the world. And that just bristles up against every bit of modern sensibility about growth and more and bigger and better and mega that I've swam in for 36 years of my life. God's kingdom grows smaller and smaller, and it's through the small, modest acts of love with intentionality that the radical thing actually happens. We often think that to be a part of God's kingdom movement, we've got to have a stage. We've got to have a massive platform and social media followers and a whole lot of money. And the more money, the more followers, the more people, then we can join in and be part of this big thing that God's doing throughout the world. But Jesus, I think, would look at that model and be like, mustard seed, you remember this? You can play that game, but like, I'm not real interested in that. I want the small things. Don't tell me what you can do on a stage. Show me what you're doing when no one's watching kind of thing is what Jesus is inviting us into. Um, a couple years ago, um, I was invited to mentor for 30 minutes a week through Bridges Outreach, one of our partner organizations, um, at Elwood Haynes. And I was uh, m- uh, matched with this first grader by the name of Lazarus, which I just joked they gave the pastor the biblical sounding name. They had to do that on purpose, right? 
But I hung out with little Lazarus all last year at Elwood Haynes. Um, and then this year he moved to Bonaire Elementary. So I'm over there every Thursday or Friday. Um, I get to hang out with him. And uh, it's just been such a joy to see this little guy grow and to try to just be a positive influence on him and to encourage him uh, with a lot of math. But now we're doing a lot of reading. And man, just over the last couple months, he's grown so much in reading that I had just finished up my sermon. And I'm sitting down with him on Friday at 2.30 at Bonaire. And he just finished reading this book that we were reading together. And I'm like, this is it. This is, this is that mustard seed small thing. And I got to look at him and I said, buddy, Look at me, I'm so proud of you. You have grown so much. You are a great reader. You can do this, buddy. Do you believe you can do this? I believe you can do this. Fist bump me like this whole thing. And I thought to myself as I was leaving, that might be the most impactful thing that I did all week long. So much more impactful than standing up on a stage and speaking to a couple hundred people about this thing. I got to be a part of it. And it was small, it was modest, it was 30 minutes. That's the kind of thing that Jesus says will rule the world. And I get to be a party to seeing this kind of thing all the time through you, through the life of our church. I think of my friend uh, Sunny who works from home, but she heard this call for uh, foreign exchange students needing a place to live. And so she moved out of her home office and readjusted her whole house, even though she has four other kids, to welcome in a kid from a different country to feel welcomed and included and be a part of their family. I think of my friend Christy, who's here most Sundays. And when there's somebody sitting in a row all by themselves and they don't know anybody, Christy has this habit of going and asking to sit with them or inviting them to come sit with her and her crew, even though they might not know anybody because she knows that you can feel alone in a crowd. I think of my friend Kevin, who serves every Sunday night in our Bridgeway Students Ministry with middle school boys smelling like Doritos and body odor, but he gets to make these weekly deposits of love, belonging, and truth and acceptance to these middle schoolers trying to figure out their way. I think about my friend Rhonda, who yesterday, or a couple weeks ago, she wanted to participate in this Kokomo, uh, Kokomo Rescue Mission fundraiser uh, called Walk a Mile in My Shoes. And she got a team of ladies from Bridgeway to get up yesterday and walk a mile outside. And I asked them this morning, did they thought out? They finally thought out, right? But they did that together. I think of my friend Tina, who gets to serve with Kokomo Urban Outreach, and she's a part of our church, and she had this idea for a fundraiser to do a bingo night at Kokomo Urban Outreach to raise funds, $5 a ticket to raise funds for youth in our community and some youth programming, and it looked like there was 100 people show up to bingo night. I'm going to the next bingo night is what I'm saying. But she just said, yes, I have this idea. I want to do this. I think of my friend Jennifer Grubb, who sits right over there at the 1130 service. And every time we share on Saturday about what's happening at Bridgeway on Sunday, she shares it. And then some people from her network, I see all the time, will post underneath like, you go to church. I'll never go back to church. I don't know if they'd accept me, if the walls would come down, if I'd walk in. And she always responds with, come sit with me. Come try it out. You belong here. This is different. Come and be with me. And then she'll stand by the door waiting for them radical hospitality. I think about us all together during this season of Community Impact supporting Care Portal, where through small acts or purchases of twin bedding and pillow cases or cleaning supplies or grocery gift cards can make a world of a difference to a mom who is in crisis and a vulnerable child. These aren't massive programs. These aren't things that have massive budgets. These are the Holy Spirit inside of us saying, Sign me up for the mustard seed revolution. My friends, 
If you want to experience the life that is truly life, if you want to be a part of what God is doing in this world as he brings his kingdom, the up there, down here, to chase out the chaos in our community, commit to a life of simple, radical, consistent, modest acts of love and just see the doors blow off of blessing, not just for you, but through you into this world. That's where the life is. This is what he's inviting us into. I love this quote from Mother Teresa or St. Teresa now. She says this. I think this is appropriate for our conversation today. Not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. You guys, I've made peace. I've made peace that um, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be on billboards with my perfect family. I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be on TV. <laughs> and you guys wouldn't be able to take that much of me either, so I understand that. We're never going to be like this massive mega church where I'm going to be broadcast all over the state and beyond. And not that I'm against those things, but like I've made peace with, I'm not in this to build a big thing with big budgets. I'm in this because I want to make a big difference through small acts of love and kingdom in this town that I love. That's what I'm in this for. And I want to invite you to partner with us as we join this mustard seed revolution where small acts of love, all together, they get the job done. I was going to call it the yeast revolution. doesn't ring off the tongue. So. <laughs> this is what he's doing. So, will you adopt that mustard seed mentality and trust the small things, do the small things and trust God with the results on his time? Will you commit to a life of radical, consistent, modest acts of love because that's how God's kingdom takes root. And that's how we change the world.